Are we this morning? All right? Some guys are a bit tired down the back there. How many guys have stayed up all night and watched the, watched the uh, quarterfinals? Some of you, yeah, via, I saw you. Spoke to one guy in the week and he said that wouldn't it be great if we had four, uh, four teams in the semis from New Zealand? And he said, we're just like heaven. Well, I don't think so. Well, maybe we're three quarters of the way there. And it reminded me of a story of a... Um, of Joe and Mick, who, who loved rugby, and as kids they played the game, and later on in life they just watched it, and as you do, they um, yelled at the ref and all that sort of stuff. And uh, But um, Joe got fairly sick, and as he was in hospital, uh, Mick visited him and said, listen, uh, listen, Joe, if you die could you, and you go to heaven, could you somehow let me know if there's rugby in heaven? And um, anyway, a few weeks later, Joe passes away, and so he makes asleep one night and a few months later, and, um, and then in the, in the dead of night, he just hears this voice, Mick, Mick. He says, Joe, is that you? He said, yeah, it is. Look, I'm just going to tell you about what's happening up here. He says, we've got some good news and some bad news. There is rugby in heaven. And I tell you what, well, our mates are here playing. You remember Bill and Frank used to play in the forwards while they're in the front row up here. It's awesome. We're playing with our mates and the weather's good. The sunshine's there. There's no wet grounds. I mean, it's fast playing. And with these new bodies we've got, we can, I mean, we can go all day and be all right for the next game tomorrow. I mean, he said, that's fantastic. And he says, that's awesome. He said, well, what's the bad news? He said, you're on the team for Tuesday. <laughs> Recently on, on a Sunday, recently on a Sunday morning, we've had this theme of living with purpose. And Jesse and the other elders and Bruce Billington have often used biblical characters as examples of those who, who were passionate about the purpose for which they lived. And as I've heard some of those messages and reflected on my understanding of some of the biblical characters as well, I've wondered if there's a bit of a, a common thread that is woven through. And that is, for me, that it seems that being in captivity or some sort of prison was a prerequisite for many of those men and women being used by God. Somehow, some sort of restraint or constriction in their, constraint or restriction in their life was necessary in order for God to use them. I mean, there was, there was Joseph, of course, there was Daniel, Esther in prison. And we, we know, we heard just recently about the Apostle Paul being in prison. But others lived with a different type of constraint, a different sort of restriction. There was, you know, Moses, because of what he did, he lived with a restriction as well. And Gideon, he was, well, he was um, very insecure, he was afraid. And then you had Hosea, who, uh, you know, God asked him to marry a woman who became a prostitute. Now, that would be a constraining factor in his life. Then you had Jeremiah, who was a depressive. And it seems that God used men and women who lived with some sort of captivity. And I wonder if, you know, we, we all have, we, never, we don't live in some, and most of us will never live with, with a physical confinement, but we all have some sort of restriction or, or, or something in our life that holds us in. For some of it, it's a, it's a health issue. Others, it could be, um, it could be a, a mental weakness, maybe something that's that's happened in our life some time ago, perhaps something that's happened in our parents' lives, and it's it's historically and generationally worked its way through, and it's affecting us. 
Maybe it's something that someone has said and it's become a restriction and a prison for us and it's the words have, have, have held us back. I was thinking about Dad in the last uh, few weeks and uh, I remember him telling the story, and some of you may have heard it, that when he was seven or eight years of, old, of age, he, he wasn't a good student. He was a mischievous boy at school and, um, and he, he just was not a, not a good academic. But anyway, one day over at Upper Hutt, primary school when he was seven or eight. He wasn't doing too well in class that day. And a teacher comes along with a ruler, smacks him on the knuckles and said, Hudson, you are useless. You will never make anything good out of your life. And those words threatened to be a prison to him. And did he have prayer? Was he released from it? Yeah, probably to some extent. But I know that right through his life, they were restrictions over his life. But in saying that, somehow God takes the God takes what can a human and human appearances can can seem to be restrictions and constraints and somehow miraculously works his freedom in order for his work to be undertaken and for good to come about. And sometimes we just wait for a life position, don't we? You just wait, oh gee, if only I could be free from that, God could use me. If only I could be released from this, you know, God could somehow I could I could be working for God in this area. But I want to suggest that God, that, that the, the, whatever is hanging over us, whatever bars are around us, rather than shaping us, for, rather than being a shadow over us, they should actually shape us for his good and for his purposes. And so that even in spite of what we're going through or what's holding us back, or perhaps even because of, God can use us for his glory. Today we're going to be looking at a, um, just briefly at a, a an Old Testament character who is a, um, a hero of mine, and we're going to take a, a look at Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was being held in captivity by King Artaxerxes. He he had uh, was in Persia, and he had a pretty trusted position with the king. He was the cupbearer. Now, cupbearers, there are pros and cons of being a cupbearer. I mean, you got to taste the good wine, of course. But if someone wanted to knock the king off, you also knew what it was like to have alcohol poisoning because that was your job. And so that, you had this role in the, in, the, in the court of the king. And anyway, as a cupbearer in the, in the, to the king of Persia, he heard this news from a friend that his beloved city of Jerusalem was in ruins. The enemy had come in and smashed the walls down and the place was a mess. It was, it was destroyed. And, and um, it really affected him. And he did three things. He wept, he prayed, and he asked God for a plan. And then he goes to the king and he says, listen, um, you, I've just heard that my city, the city I love, is in ruins. I'd like you to give me permission to go back and help rebuild the city. The king does. He lets him go for a period of time. And then he says to the king, well, listen, I'd like to pick up some building materials through Lebanon on the way as I go through. And so the king gives him permission to do that as well. So he goes on his way and he collects the building materials from Lebanon, partly because the placemaker's rep wouldn't deliver them to the site. And so <laughs> picks up the materials, he heads back to Jerusalem. And the city is a mess. It's, it's a rubble. And, and the place is dilapidated. The, 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 the gates have been destroyed. The timber beams are charred. There's the stonework that's kind of fractured and the masonry is all broken. And the people were just living their lives. The Hebrews that were left in the, in the city were just living their lives amongst the rubble. And 
So he pulls all the men of the, the, the leaders of the city together and he says, Hey guys, we just we can't live like this. The place is a mess. We've got to do something about rebuilding the city. And so to, to and then he used the words interesting words, he says, We've got to rid this city of its disgrace. And so then we know the story where he, he set about with a plan of, of pulling everybody together to rebuild the city walls. And he had the young and the old, the, the, uh, the men, the women, the kids all working together, families working together to rebuild the wall right adjacent to where they lived in their homes. And there was opposition. Samballat, Geshem and Tobiah were three men who opposed the work of the rebuilding of the walls. And they, interesting that those men were, were prominent leaders in three arenas of life in the religious, political, and business areas of life. And they opposed the rebuilding of the wall. Anyway, they, some of the opposition was taunting. They kind of said, well, yeah, how do you guys really look at the broken stones, look at the rubble, look at the mess you're working with. How do you think you can build a wall that's going to last with that rubbish? And some of the opposition was, was kind of violent opposition, and they started, you know, started attacking them. And so the... Not only did the men who were rebuilding the wall have to wear a sword as well as carry their building tools, but sometimes other people were, impl- were, were situated just to protect as, as warriors for those who were, who were looking after the wall and the rebuild. But anyway, after 52 days, the wall was rebuilt. An awesome, an awesome venture, the wall was rebuilt. Just a bit of kind of historical context here. Thirteen years before Nehemiah, Ezra, and Ezra is a book, of course, that comes before Nehemiah in the Old Testament, Ezra had, re- Ezra had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Now, the rebuilding of the temple is symbolic of the restoration of the church. The rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem is symbolic of the restoration of a community. Now, I'm not a theologian, but I do know this, and that the Old Testament, the broken walls of Jerusalem symbolize the spiritual ruin of the human condition. Okay. So can you imagine what it would be like to live amongst the ruins? You know, the place is, there's debris everywhere, the city is destroyed, there's rubble, stones, broken masonry, timber beams. Here we can you oh you can can you hold on to that for a tick? You can hold on to that, can't you? Just hold it there for a you wraps up. You can hold on to that one there. They're right. Be careful. And there's I mean here they were just they were living their lives I mean they just couldn't get away from from the destruction, from the debris. Was everywhere. I don't know if you have watched news clips on, and you've seen the the bomb cities in Syria, and and Iraq, and it was, and it was just like that. There was there were stones everywhere. I mean, it was just, it was a mess. This could go on for a long time, couldn't it? And um, this is not a whole wall. Eh? This is just kind of a wee bit. And they could, I mean, they were just. That's, they existed, just attempting to live with some normality. Um, stepping over the ruins and walking around the stones and uh, to get some normality in their daily lives, trying to get the routine so that um, they could just live as they lived. And church, I wonder, 
if sometimes we live the same way. Okay, the buildings haven't collapsed, but the chaos and the disarray of our world surrounds us just like this. The brokenness of people's lives is ever-present, as close as the neighbour's fence. The pain that people experience, whether it's culture-inflicted or self-inflicted, is sometimes just as close as a handshake. And we walk around, and you see, the, the damage to our world is... Is, is greater than we imagine, greater than we've ever known, and it's undeniably increasing, isn't it? Our prisons have reached capacity. We have sexual abuse. We have, you know, we we have um, poverty. We have we have pornography like it's never been seen before. I, I read a story just this last week of a 23-year-old young guy who admits that he became addicted to pornography at eight years of age. Our world is damaged. There is debris and there is brokenness everywhere. There is... When I was young, we used to talk about delinquent kids. Now we have delinquent parents. We have abuse. We have kids getting knocked around. We have kids getting murdered. And I was talking to a a fellow this week when we heard the news of once more another father being sent to jail for murdering his child. And he's from England, this guy, and he had tears in his eyes. He's not a Christian. He had tears in his eyes. He said, listen, I came to New Zealand for a better life. I like the outdoors. I like cycling. I like kayaking. I came here because of the green landscape and because of the life that it offers me. But... Your abuse of children in New Zealand is far, far worse than it is in England. The damage of our world, of our life, of our culture, of our community surrounds us. There is solvent abuse, there is poverty, there is a loss of hope, and of course suicides are increasing. Several years ago, I don't know what it's like now, but several years ago we kind of, at the top of those statistics in terms of some of the age groups for for suicide in New Zealand. So just like the damage to Jerusalem, we are surrounded by hurting people. And it's not always obvious, but but lives and families uh, suffer this pain of loss. Entire communities, not as they should be. And at this point, at this point we have to understand what sin is. Because I come from an evangelical background and I used to think that sin was lying and cheating and murder and stealing. You know. And then we moved on and said, okay, sin is not just an aggressive um, rejection of God, you know, waving a fist at God, but it's also a passive resistance. Of saying, oh God, I haven't got the time and I want to find out about you. But sin is more than that. Sin is more than just the presence of evil. Sin is also the absence of what is good. The Hebrews use the word shalom. And shalom, we think, means just, well, we, we kind of think of it as peace. But it's far more than that. It's the fullness, it's the enrichment, it's the, it's, the, it's the goodness and the wholeness of life for all of life, for all of creation. And we need to understand that the, the spiritual ruin of the human condition 
can only be replaced by the shalom that God and his Holy Spirit can bring. What is our response to this? What is our response to the brokenness, to the, to the walls that are, that are fractured and the stonework that's kind of the debris and the chaos that surrounds us? What is our response? Well, we can be like the Hebrews. We can just kind of live amongst it. And, and we, we sort of get used to it. It becomes a bit familiar. I mean, it's awkward at times, you know, and you've got to step around it, and, um, but it becomes just a part of life. Or maybe we, 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 we know it's there, and, but we just try and avoid it, you know. I mean, we see the destruction in the world, and we see all the pain and the grief that's out there, and we just want to go to our secure place. And we, we, we hide away, and occasionally we'll look out the curtains, we'll say, ooh, ooh, it's not good out there, is it? And we close it again, and we, we, we do our best to avoid it. Or maybe we do acknowledge it. We see it and we say, okay, what can we do? But it just seems too big for us. It's, the, the task is, is huge. What do we do? But we can pray, and that's good. But what else can we do? Or maybe we try and blame something, blame someone. And, you know, okay, so it's the fall, it's, it's the devil, it's Eve and Adam, of course. But, but who do we blame? I mean, Christians are good at blaming the stuff for what's happened. We write books about it. What's wrong with our culture? It's a bit like the story, I don't know if you've heard it, of the traffic officer who was going up the, the, around the motorway and he um, comes around the corner and there's a bus on its side, had an accident, and there's, the bus is a mess and there's people lying injured on the road. And um, the medics had got there before him and they were attending to the injured, but he notices a, a monkey walking around the wreckage of the bus, looking a bit dazed. And so he goes to the monkey and he says, hey, listen, he says, were you on the the bus? And the monkey being dazed, he can't talk, but he nods his head. And and then he says to the monkey, well, what were all these people doing on the bus? And the monkey goes, the officer says, you mean they were talking? And the monkey goes, yep. And he says, what else they were doing? And the monkey goes, officer says, you mean they were drinking? And And the monkey goes, yep. So, well, well, what were you doing? And the monkey goes. <laughs> and we, we try and find someone to blame. And sometimes the church is a little bit like the officer questioning the monkey. We've got to have someone to blame. Who's, who's to blame for the debris and the disarray of our world? I mean, is it the results of the Enlightenment? Is it Freud? Is it the inroads of humanism? Is it some... Um, sort of liberal anti-Christian, you know, legislation that was passed by Parliament. Is that, the, is that the reason for it? Is it the National Party? Is it the Labour Party? You know, who, who is at fault? Who's to blame for this? You know, is it because we don't have prayer and school assemblies anymore? Or is it because we, um, is it because we, people just don't go to church? Is that the reason? Many years ago, when Fellowship first started, um, the, what do you call it, the sculpture opposite the railway station was erected with the woman, the mother, and the couple of kiddies. And some people in Upper Heart, some Christians in Upper Heart were really disturbed about it. And some people at church, I think there was even a petition going around to have it removed. You know, In fact, one person wanted to go there late one night with a truck and a rope. And just as they did with the statues of Stalin and Saddam Hussein, pull the thing over, you know. But anyway, my idea was to actually engage another sculptor to sculpt a, a husband or a father and in the dead of night go there 
with the sculpture and have it planted beside the mum with his hand on the shoulder. You know, that would have been great, I reckon. Didn't happen anyway. But who's to blame? Who's to blame? And that's our, what, what is our response to this? Do we just live in the familiarity? And that's the way we do, attempting to live our lives. Do we ignore it and withdraw into our safe, sacred, kind of secure place? Or do we try and find someone to blame? Folks, if, if we remain inactive, the debris remains. If we don't do anything, it stays just as it is. If my lips remain sealed, the message of reconciliation that I carry is never expressed. If we remain silent, the gospel of the kingdom, his story, the greatest story ever told, threatens to become the greatest story hardly ever told. Folks, we have to do something. And no matter who we are and what giftings we have, we need to do something. Can we have that passage on the screen, please? Mel? If there was ever a a passage of scripture that was a dominant focus in the early years of CFUH, it is these words from Isaiah 58. And we would do well to revisit these words. I'd like us to, to read them together. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then you will call the Lord answer. Yes, I am here, he will quickly reply. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumours. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. Just the last few verses. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer. Amen to that, eh? Those words from the prophet Isaiah were about 250 years, I think, before Nehemiah got the message about the, the ruin of Jerusalem. We would do well to pluck those words out of our distant past and inscribe them as a signpost for our future. See, we've called to bring transformation, to rebuild. We're called to, to, to take the, the stones, the lives that are around us, and I think I can do this by myself. Although I'd love, I'd love people to help.
we're called to take the fractured stonework, the broken masonry and the, and the hurting lives. And the hurting lives. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Bruce. It's coming together, isn't it? Is it? Tell me it is. To take the fractured stonework and the broken masonry and the, and the charred timber beams and rebuild a city and restore homes. By the way, this hasn't got a building consent. So. There you go. And some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your city. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. Using all the skills that we have and the resources and the Holy Spirit of God working through us to carry the message of reconciliation, calling all men, all things unto himself and doing a restoration and the reconciliation work and rebuilding a city. Isn't that true? I hear you asking, yeah, well, maybe, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big job, isn't it? And I was really impressed with what um, Shannon and Jesse shared before about Go Church, and the church is about going out there. And I just want to encourage us to do whatever we can to get it. And it's not just about events. Events are there to build bridges, and it's about relationships. And I'll share some stuff with you in a minute that we've been working on as well. And we can sort of all tie that in together and see what God can do in a miraculous way. But I know how hard it is because I live with the, with the disconnect between my faith as well and the world that's out there. And how easy it is for me to, um, to realize that there's ignorance out there, there's scorn and there's mocking. So how do we, this task is big. But folks, we've been, we've been listening over these last few weeks about being passionate about the purpose that we have. And the men and women who achieved great things for God against insurmountable odds did so with a focus, to, uh, with an unwavering faith, a focus to the cause and a dedication to their purpose. It can be done. One of the, just before I close, one of the, sobering passages that I've read lately in the Bible is in the end of Genesis 11. And it's the story of Abraham's father, just a couple of short verses, Abraham's father, Terah, who was called from the Ur of the Chaldees to go to Canaan, the promised land. And it says that he, he, he started his journey, but he settled in Haran. We don't know why he settled he could have settled because of his livestock or something could have happened to his, to his stock. He could have settled for business reasons. He could have settled because his children intermarried with the locals. He could have settled because of sickness. I don't know why. It doesn't say why he settled. But the next verse says this. It says he died in Haran. In other words, where he settled, he died. Dangerous, eh? We've got to move on. Got to move on. Because where you settle, you die. 
Several years, many, many years ago, in my 20s, I ran a campus life group here in Upper Hutt. We sometimes had 120, 140 college-age students. And um, God did some amazing things in the rumpus room of mum and dad's house. And later on, I got involved with Wayne Kirkland in a program called LifeWorks, which was really working with non-church people who were interested in exploring the faith. So for many years, I've had a real passion about what can we do to really bless the city, to, take, to carry the message of reconciliation and, and see the city changed in a, in a miraculous way. And so I've been thinking about that. And in talking with Ron Vink, he was also thinking about some stuff. And so we put our heads together a bit and we put our hearts together. Although that's a bit of a scary thought, isn't it? Um, and, we've, and we've come up with ideas and it's really good how it links in with what Jesse and Shannon have been sharing. But can you just, um, Mel, can you put that on the screen, please? Okay, we've got a we've 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 formed a kind of a network. We'd call it a network. You could call it an organisation or a ministry, but that doesn't go down that well in some places. We've called it a network of people from different churches, different organisations, the council. We've talked to we've talked to the council. We've talked to several different churches so far and some schools, and we've called it for a better city. Yet to have the logo, but for a better city. That is the name of what we're doing. And we want to, the idea is, is to not just to bless the city, but to help churches do what sometimes they don't have the time to do or, or, or the skill set to do and to really promote events with the different churches to act, and specifically with CFUH to help where we can help in blessing the community in which we live, helping to rebuild. It's on three levels. Let me just go back to the, ah, oh, there we go, there's a, there's a logo for us, for a better city. Can we go back to that, those three um, levels, Mel? Um, great. Okay. It's on three levels. Firstly, engaging with people on their level. Okay? So we engage with people, and like what Jesse was talking about before with the events here, what we are doing on one of those events also is the multicultural concert in a couple of weeks. Now, that is a chance for us with 600 people here who are involved in an event like that, with also with food stalls, just for us to engage with them, people that we would not normally engage with, and build a bridge with people that we'd normally be distant from. That's one level. The second level is equipping people for skills for life. And that comes, one thing we're doing in September is a, is a night for parents on cyber safety. And we're involved in the schools, and the council are involved in this, where uh, you, you know what young people, what kids are exposed to now on their, you know, on their mobiles and their cell phones or whatever at a very, very young age. As I said before, a young guy was addicted at eight. And we want to, we've got a woman coming from Australia who is very, very good at, at kind of educating not just the problem, but how we can, how parents can actually be resourced to deal with it and to, and to keep the kids safe. It's happening in September. On another level, we are inviting people to explore the Christian faith. So we're kind of, there's some steps there. And we've got a, we're just working through some stuff with a program called The Living Room, which is a chance for non-church people to have a, a kind of a, a very relaxed, informal, non-offensive way of, of exploring the Christian faith. And we've got a couple of series lined up. One is called Who Is This Man? A really good series, six-week series on, a, on the... On really exploring the impact that Jesus has had in history. Sometimes our understanding of Jesus is quite 
well, I wouldn't say narrow, but it's kind of experiential. But when you look at what he's, the experience, the, the impact of Jesus in history with science, the arts, with music, and, and his, in areas especially of the dignity for women and for life of children, the, the impact of the life of Jesus is immense. No one has changed history like that man. And there are a lot of secular, you know, philosophers and sociologists who concede that right up. And then the last part of the series talks with about Easter, the three days of Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and giving people the opportunity to respond. So we'll fill you in more on that later on. But those are the three levels that we're looking at. Engaging people with on their level, equipping people for skills of life, and that comes... We're already doing some of that stuff now, the community dinner out in the, in the CAF, and then we're doing breakfast in schools as well, and there's other things that are happening. So inviting people to explore the Christian faith. Good? Is that exciting? Yeah, cool. Thank you very much. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for what you have given us. Wow. God, the, the concept of shalom, of the richness, of the fullness of, the, of life in its totality, as it should be, as it should be. And we, Lord, we know that at times we, we bring fracture ourselves, we bring brokenness ourselves, but Lord... We ask that you would restore us in the process so that we can bring restoration to others. And Lord, we pray that, that the city that we love, the city that we're called to, the city that we hold dear, Lord, that we would be an influence for good. You would help us to take that verse in Isaiah 58 where we can be the rebuilder of walls and the restorer of homes. And we pray right now, Lord, for those who are hurting for those in pain, for those that we know, for those that we are close to, who are going through some real heartache at the moment. We ask that by your spirit, you would bring your life, you would bring your, you would bring your goodness, and you would bring your wholeness to them, we pray. And may we, no matter what our skill set is, and no matter what our resources are, or what we can do, what we think we can't do, and what we, what we are able to do, Lord, you'll use us for your glory. And we'll see a city changed, the walls rebuilt. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for all you've done and for all you're going to do. And we look forward in faith, unwavering faith, for what this good God is going to do. Amen. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for him.